From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Good evening. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening. He's off on a well-deserved rest for this weekend. And it is my pleasure to man the microphone and take you to places that you've not considered before. And uh, it's uh, indeed a pleasure, and I thank Richard for the opportunity to, uh, to allow me to do this kind of thing with you. Um, before we begin, I would like to welcome one of our new affiliates here to The Conspiracy Show. And uh, I guess uh, maybe that's, it's time to mention KFLD AM 870, Yakima, Washington, to the fold. I think that pretty much... Uh, gives us approximately, oh, I would think, 20 affiliates that are right across the United States uh, enjoying the, the great entertainment that you can hear every um, every hour by hour here on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, this evening, we've got a very um, dynamic and very disturbing program to, uh, uh, to present to you. Um, genetically modified food or GMOs, genetically modified um, organisms. We, we sit down at the dinner table um, just about every single night or we have breakfast and we consume different kinds of food and without much thought behind it. And you go to the grocery store, you pick up broccoli, you pick up uh, your asparagus, you pick up uh, your meat and so on and so forth without too much thought. Uh, we, we take it for granted a lot. And I think that it's something that we need to visit, revisit in ourselves, too, with the kinds of things that we're ingesting on a daily basis. And when you leave it at that level, it's, it's, it's not too disturbing because not too many of us uh, take it as seriously as we should. But then when you move to the corporate level and the kinds of things certain corporations are to put these kinds of genetically modified uh, uh, foods on our plate through the grocery stores and, and so on and restaurants, etc., um, it really raises a few issues about the kind of control that corporations have over our lives, our daily lives, every single day of our life. In one way or another, there's a corporate entity, be it media, be it uh, government, uh, be it uh, communications, whatever it might be. Large corporations are having uh, a control over our lives. Uh, I know that uh, w- with regard to uh, things like technology, cell phones, uh, and, and all of these kinds of things, the kinds of control that we have, the contracts that we enter into with some of these communication uh, companies, um, they have control behind things or of things and with things that we do not see. We don't see into the back rooms. And this evening we want to try to do a little bit of that, is bring you some information that just might um, enlighten you about the kinds of foods that we're uh, ingesting and the kinds of things that certain corporations are doing to those foods before they even come close to um, being on our plate. And this evening we've got uh, one guest uh, who's going to help us along through that and point out some of the real, um, I guess, problems with the kinds of things corporations are doing. And our guest this evening is Dr. David Carpenter. He's an MD. He's a public health physician whose current position is director of the Institute for Health and Environment at the University of Albany, as well as a professor of environmental health sciences within the School of Public Health at the University of Albany. After receiving his MD degree from Harvard Medical School, he chose a career of research in public health. After research positions at the Institute, he came to Albany in 1980 as director of the Wadsworth Center for the largest public health laboratory in the United States. 
in an effort to uh, build ties with New York State uh, Department of Health and the University of Albany, resulting in the creation of the School of Public Health, a position he held until 1998, when he became the director of the Institute of Health and Environment. So I'd like to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Dr. David Carpenter. Good evening. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us. And, uh, yeah, I, I must say that, uh, I, I ran into, um, some of your work, um, on the, on the wonderful documentary that was put together, uh, just recently about, uh, the world according to Monsanto in which you, uh, you played a role in, in, um, in appearing in part of that documentary. And that documentary, uh, the specifics of it were that you were involved in a case in Alabama, Anniston, Alabama, if I recall correctly, where, um, there were certain Certain kinds of PCBs that were put into the uh, into the environment, and you were part of that research. Is that correct? That's correct. Anniston, Alabama, is uh, the site of one of the two plants operated by Monsanto in the U.S. that manufactured PCBs, and I think those were the major manufacturing sites in all of North America. They were manufactured in Anniston from 1929 until the early 1970s, and uh, our well, first of all, there were uh, there was almost no study of the health of the people that lived around the site until a lawsuit was entered, actually a series of lawsuits, and I served as an expert witness in many of these. And they documented just enormous health problems of the people that lived near the site. And furthermore, that the magnitude of the health problems were related to the levels of PCBs in their bodies. PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols, were manufactured there. Uh, They were a very useful product. They were an oil, and depending on how heavily chlorinated they were, they would either be sort of like a kitchen oil or they'd be very viscous. And so they were used as hydraulic fluids. They were good electrical insulators, so they they were used in capacitors, as uh, we still have a problem in New York City right now because all the fluorescent lights that haven't been replaced for 20 years still have PCBs in the ballast and the lights, and sometimes they leak and cause problems. But uh, the research problem, the the lawsuits raised the issue of the problem, and then Senator Shelby of Alabama uh, really forced the federal government to mount a research program studying people in the city. I've been a major part of that. It was operated basically by a consortium of universities. And uh, my role was to study the cardiovascular disease patterns in the residents and uh, rates of hypertension. And uh, so I've, I've been in very much involved in that and actually just today submitted another manuscript to a scientific journal on some of our results from those studies. Mm -hmm. What is it exactly about PCBs that makes them dangerous uh, to to us? Well, they are known human carcinogens. Uh, They were uh, known to be probable human carcinogens for many years. And last February, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, uh, reviewed the, the evidence and declared them to be known human carcinogens. And I was a member of that panel. The problem with them is that they're, they're fat-soluble substances, and because they're, they have so many chlorines, it's very difficult for our body to destroy them. And therefore, they accumulate 
primarily in our body fat. But our body fat is in uh, equilibrium with our, our brain, our organs. And when you have this known human carcinogen circulating, uh, it does increase the risk of cancer. And the evidence for that is just overwhelming. But PCBs do many, many other things. Uh, most people know that, that children exposed to lead have reduced IQ. But PCBs do exactly the same thing. Uh, they also increase the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They tend to reduce the function of your thyroid gland, which regulates your metabolism. Uh, they increase the risk of diabetes. They increase the risk of heart disease. So there's, there's almost no uh, organ system that's not affected. They uh, suppress the immune system which is part of the reason why they increase the risk of cancer, but that also increases the risk that one will get an infection. Mm -hmm. Or if you get an infection, if your immune system is not up to par, it will be more serious and more long-lasting than it would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. So these are very yeah, bad of course. chemicals. In my experience as an educator, I started teaching uh, back in 1969, Doctor, and um, and as, as a young educator, um, you know, I had 35, 40 students in front of me, as most teachers did back in those days. And by and large, most of the students, and I don't want to generalize here, but most of the students were, you know, of, of average ability. And, uh, and But as I moved through my career, uh, both as a teacher and as an administrator, it was really clear after, oh my goodness, I'm trying to think exactly when it, my first sense started. Probably in the early 80s is when I began to see as an educator when I moved into administration, this really strange onslaught of, of children with um, attention, deficit disorder, attention deficit disorders, different kinds of hyperactivity, um, different, an, an onslaught of, a huge onslaught of asthma. Um, and all these things seem to kind of flower at the same time. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, when, when PCBs came onto the scene and even lead, uh, I, I suppose, as you, as you alluded to, um, I'm, I'm trying to make a correlation here. It may or may not be a correct correlation, but uh, when these kinds of things are brought into the environment, and I'm not sure if it was you who said it in the uh, in the documentary, but we all have the PCBs in us. And so when, when did this... What, when would it have really started to, to, to manifest itself? Well, you're absolutely right. We all have measurable amounts of PCBs in our bodies. And the reason is that our food supply is contaminated. Uh, if you eat a hamburger, the fat that's part of that hamburger is going to have some PCBs in it. If you eat a fish, uh, no matter where it's caught, you're going to have some PCBs. And if you eat a fish out of the Great Lakes or out of the St. Lawrence River or out of the Hudson River... They're so contaminated, they're not safe to eat. Uh, you know, I think, and this this will lead into our study, our, our discussion of corporations. Uh, after World War II, we suddenly began to turn to chemicals. There was a lot of advance during World War II in, in the terms of, of fighting the war, but after the war was over, suddenly chemicals were just such a good thing. So we used DDT to kill all of the insects and never thought about the fact that it, like PCBs, stays in our body and has all kinds of adverse effects. Uh, PCBs had been manufactured before that, but they became in widespread use after World War II. And that period in the 50s and 60s and 70s 
was really a peak time when everybody thought chemicals were just the most wonderful thing in the world, and nobody really asked the question, do they have harmful effects? And and also, do they stay in our bodies? Now, uh, you know, we still we still have chemicals all over the place. Uh, We have chemicals in our personal care products, in our deodorants. Uh, We add antibiotics into our our soaps. And uh, all of these chemicals, many of them have not been studied carefully to determine whether or not they're hazardous. And, And so they have potential problems. Of course. We're speaking with Dr. David Carpenter from the University of Albany in New York. And, uh, I hope you join us on the other side of the break. My name is Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening on The Conspiracy Show. And it is our pleasure to have along with us this evening Dr. David Carpenter from the University of Albany in New York. And we are talking about PCBs and, I guess, corporate behavior in regards to uh, the kinds of things that they let escape into the environment. Because, as uh, Dr. Carpenter just alluded to, uh, the chemicals at the end of World War II uh, were the apparent savior of, uh, of the industrial um, direction that the planet was going at the time. And from my understanding, uh, Dr. Carpenter, a lot of these corporations, uh, when they began, as far back as 1929 from what I can understand, is they, they began making these kinds of chemicals, and they didn't really do the due the uh, due diligence that they needed to do to first of all find out what they were making and the second of all to to find out what the uh, impact would be on the environment uh, now h- how did this kind of information first of all get set up within these corporations and then again combine it with that why do you think some of these corporations literally in, in my information in my research withheld information from the public and the government about what they were making well in all of this legal activity in Anderson, Alabama one of my colleagues prepared a, a full booklet that's entitled What Monsanto Knew. And the question is, at what point in time did Monsanto realize that PCBs were hazardous? And the answer to that was they knew that very, very early when their workers began to show signs of sickness. And some of the early signs were uh, what's called chloracne, which is a skin eruption that reflects very high exposures. A lot of the diseases caused by the PCBs, however, take years to develop. So uh, it's certainly true that it, at early on they didn't realize the great variety of diseases were caused by the agents. But, number one, the corporations were concerned primarily about their, their bottom line, their profit. And, number two, the government of all countries did not have uh, regulations in place requiring uh, testing of compounds for safety to determine both whether they're persistent in the environment and in the human body and whether they're toxic. Now, compounds like PCBs and DDT are both very persistent in the environment. and They harm wildlife, and they're very persistent in our bodies. For both of them, it takes about 7 to 10 years 
you ate contaminated fish last night for dinner, it would take seven to ten years before half of what you got of either PCBs or DDT would be removed from your body. They're that persistent. So as we as we get older, the concentration of these chemicals tends to get greater, mainly because we take them in more rapidly than we can get rid of them. And I guess we're not being told the full story about what we're ingesting and, and what the, the long-term effects are. And we're, we're doing it on a, on a rapidly increasing cycle. And as you say, these things unfold many, many years after. And uh, as you know, some of the, the, the learning dysfunction that I alluded to earlier, uh, it just seems like it's a, geomet- a geometric expansion of these kinds of uh, uh, symptoms of these chemicals. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I really attribute a lot of the failure on that score to our governments. Uh, now, granted, governments are they're, they're political entities, and the corporations that are making money off of these chemicals they produce don't want regulation. Uh, in the U.S., our Toxic Substance Control Act dates from 1976, and uh, it was that act that actually prohibited the continued manufacture of PCBs. But of the something like 85,000, 86,000 industrial chemicals that are in use today, only about 300 of them have ever been totally tested. And, you know, there, there's this problem that it's understandable that a corporation wants to make money. That's what they're set up to do. And they have shareholders that want return on their investment. Uh, but they also have an obligation to the public to not produce things that are toxic. And uh, our governments have the very serious obligation to provide oversight and regulation and to require that before a new chemical is, is put into our food or on our bodies or in our market in any way, that we know that it doesn't reduce IQ, it doesn't cause birth defects, it doesn't lead to a greater risk of diabetes, mm-hmm. and all of these things, which uh, often, in, in actually in the majority of cases, our governments do a very poor job at. I think the Canadian government does a better job than the U.S. government, but even the Canadian's process is not as, as rigorous as it should be. Let's, let's talk a minute about that, because uh, I, I have uh, read some information lately that some of these larger corporations, and I, I won't get into naming the ones that I'm, I think I'm aware of, but they are actually in the business of either having their lawyers or their, their corporate officials in one way or another actually write themselves the legislation that's put before the elected representatives to, to consider. Um, have, have you ever run across this any of that? absolutely correct. Uh, you know, and again, the situation in Canada is not quite as bad as it is in the mm-hmm. But politicians have to have money given to them in order to run for office. And so they get money from corporations. They don't get a lot of money from ordinary citizens because ordinary citizens usually don't have a lot of money. But corporations whose profits depend on on sale of something uh, will provide uh, funds to politicians, provide advice to the politicians, and often have their lawyers write draft legislation. Uh, so it becomes a, a system where things uh, are done that protect the corporations that fail to protect the public. 
in in your work, I guess I mean, you you took on this this project with uh, the Alabama situation and and in having read some of the things uh, on your website, um, what, what kinds of work do you do to um, to try to enlighten the public on this? Well, uh, first first what I do is uh, my own research, and I I have ongoing projects uh, not only in Anniston, Alabama. I've got a project. Uh, looking at uh, the Mohawk uh, Reservation at Aquasasne on the Canadian-U.S. border, mm-hmm. where for 20 years, almost 30 years now, we've been studying the effects of PCBs in those persons. Uh, there, the source of PCBs were the aluminum foundries on the St. Lawrence River, run by General Motors, by Alcoa, by Reynolds Metals. They used PCBs as hydraulic fluids, and when they leaked, they washed them down the drain into the rivers. So the St. Lawrence and its tributaries have very high concentrations of PCBs in their fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then I have another project in northern Alaska where I look with the uh, native Alaskan population that eats marine mammals, and they, even though they're removed from these sources down in the more temperate regions, these compounds go by the air to the polar regions, come out of the air, and then and uh, concentrate in the fat of these marine mammals that are main diets of those people. So I, I start by doing the research that documents in the most rigorous fashion that I can that there are health hazards. And then in addition, I, I try to explain the results of those uh, studies to the public. And many scientists are a little afraid of doing that because Often the press will distort what you say and so forth. Uh, another example, I was part of the team a few years ago that looked at contaminants in salmon. And we found that farm salmon, particularly farm salmon from northern Europe, were so full of these persistent chemicals that cause cancer. It included PCBs, it included DDT, a variety of other pesticides and dioxins. And uh, using the, the fish consumption advisories that EPA, uh, the U.S. EPA, uh, gives, whereby if you know the concentration of one chemical, you can calculate how many meals of fish, a uh, standard-sized meal that you can eat per month without increasing your risk of cancer. And they have other formulas if they're more than one can- cancer-causing agent. We calculated that the fish from Northern Europe, you could only safely eat one meal every five months without increasing your risk of cancer. So, you know, you get the research results, and if they're hidden in a scientific journal that only other scientists see, it doesn't uh, provide information to the public. So I've tried very hard to uh, to be one of the translators. I, for many years, had a weekly radio show and uh, called The Health Show. Uh, I've written uh, regular articles in a local newspaper. I don't hesitate to go on the radio as with this show to try to explain not only how we get exposed to these chemicals, but what their health effects are and what we can do that would reduce our exposure. It seems like a, a really almost incredible or impossible situation because the way technology is moving, these chemicals are getting more and more sophisticated, and the corporate, uh, I guess, uh, I guess, compulsion to put these products on the market and to make a profit, it seems like a never-ending string. Uh, it just... Well, it, it is that. It's exactly that. But 
you know, the public is not stupid if they're provided with information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the only way we're really going to have government step up to the plate and insist on the regulations that uh, are appropriate is if the public understands that, uh, you know, you're not, you're not uh, dumping on all business. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not trying to shut down corporations just for the sake of shutting down corporations because we all benefit from the products of industry. But it's not inappropriate in any way to demand that, uh, that their products that they produce and that they make money on mm-hmm. not be harmful to to the public. Yeah. Well, I think it's something that the media has to pick up on because if it's not something that's an educational process uh, that, that occurs on a frequent basis, the general public just literally falls asleep about these kinds of issues. You know, we could have issues that are that are brought up in e- each city and town across the United States and Canada, and these things seem to rise and fall like balloons. They go up one day and then they're down the next, so we really don't pay attention to the really important things that are going on consistently in our daily lives. And I, I guess, you know, the work that you're doing and the, these kinds of radio programs that we're providing here provide some sort of backdrop to uh, enlighten people to say, listen, there's something going on and we need to pay attention to it. And, and I suppose really the only way out of this is being more demanding of our elected officials. I think that's exactly right. That's the, the lever we all have. We all have the vote. We all can also inform our elected officials because, you know, they're human like anyone else. They don't have time to uh, read on every subject. And when people become knowledgeable about the dangers of chemicals in our food supply. They really need to insist that our elected officials do everything they can to pass laws that will protect us. In a lot of ways, it's like a game of darts. It seems like the corporations can throw a, a dart and hit the, the bullseye you know, nine out of ten times to get exactly the kind of information and, and response from government that they want. But you know, people like you and I and the general public, we can throw 15 darts at it, and some of the, some of the darts don't even hit the dartboard. They, they just ignore the situation. And you really wonder what's going on behind the scenes to motivate corporations and government to do what they do to you know, pad the bottom lines. I, I hate to sound so mercenary, about it, but isn't that in fact kind of what's happening? Yes, that is. But, you know, I think your analogy is a good one, that you and I may may throw 15 darts, and some of them may not hit the dartboard, but one or two may. And if we have a whole pile of people throwing 15 darts, even if only one or two mm-hmm. hit the target, that's the only way that we're going to get change, because the general public doesn't have a lot of money. It's the corporations that have the money. And the politicians depend on money, and when someone gives them a lot of money, they feel obligated to assist them. Uh, And, you know, I don't mean to say that all politicians are just bought, but uh, that's part of the real world. So it, it is imperative that the general public, first of all, become informed on these issues, and secondly press their elected representatives to... Is there any specific process that you've been involved before that's been successful in, in doing and bringing to a head something very specific, other than perhaps the Alabama situation? Well, uh, it's hard to, to say uh, specific things. I've been very much involved in uh, looking at health effects that people suffer from if they live near a hazardous waste site here in New York State. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a good registry of uh, hazardous waste sites and what chemicals are in them. And we have also a good hospitalization database so that Mm -hmm. if you go into a hospital, that hospital must report to the state health department every Mm -hmm. disease you have. 
Well, that's and so we have demonstrated that if you live by a waste site that contains certain chemicals, and we've focused a lot on PCBs and and the chlorinated pesticides like DDT, uh, that you get these, you have a higher chance of having diabetes, heart disease, asthma, respiratory infections. Now, how is that translated to uh, people's health? Well, everybody can't just move away from their home because it's by a hazardous waste site. Okay, I'm going to have to but hold it you. it has yeah. influenced the policy okay. of the state. I have to hold you there, uh, Doctor. We're just about ready for our break. And I want to thank you very, very much for being with us this evening. You've, uh, you've brought a whole new uh, perspective to this. And I want to thank you very much. And continued great luck and good luck in, in your, uh, your endeavors. In your thank endeavors. you very much. Okay, take care now, Doctor. Good. Bye now. Well, my goodness, uh, uh, another door open for us this evening. And I'm hoping that uh, we can continue to open this door a little bit more. And after the break... We will present you with another door uh, that will open your eyes to something that is extremely disturbing. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening. And uh, once again, I'd like to welcome all of our affiliates to The Conspiracy Show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, just previously, we were listening to Dr. David Carpenter regarding his experiences with um, PCBs in Alabama and trying to uh, fight the corporate entities that pretty much had their own way with allowing these kinds of things to enter into the environment and uh, disturbed the lives of a lot of people. If you've ever seen the uh, documentary, um, uh, The World According to Monsanto, uh, you can pick it up probably on Google someplace, on YouTube. Uh, very interesting. It's an educational process all in and of itself. And if if you're a thinking person at all, it will disturb you. It will be very, um, I guess, it'll grab you in a way that kind of makes you think, my goodness, what am I doing? What kinds of foods am I ingesting? And how long will it take those foods to develop into other kinds of things within my own body? And not only my own body, but the body of my children and and uh, you know, the people that come after me. So I'll tell you something. It's, it's sitting here and being educated in this way is not an easy thing to do. But I think we're going to go in another direction completely this evening. And uh, what I like to call brush the fur the other way. And, and in a way, we learn by being disturbed. And this next guest that we have on, I think, will be a kingpin in doing that because I know that he has some very, very strong feelings about the um, GMO situation. And in addition to that, uh, the, the, the dairy industry and how the dairy industry has been affected in a very specific way uh, with respect to um, uh, transgenic kinds of... Uh, uh, substances that are injected into the into the kinds of foods that we eat. Um, Peter Harden started the milkweed in 1979. Um, over three decades, uh, the paper has become the standard for dairy reporting in the United States. And Mr. Harden brings 30 plus years of experience and contacts in the USA uh, dairy industry to the pages of the milkweed. He and his wife uh, live in in Brooklyn, Wisconsin. And he's here this evening to join us and uh, shed some light on some very interesting things with the FDA and uh, bovine growth hormones. Uh, welcome to the program, Peter Harden. 
Good to be here, Victor. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Just fine. Thank you very much. You're coming through loud and clear. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in res- with respect to our earlier conversation uh, that we had this evening, um, that when, when I picked up the phone and, and spoke with you, um, I could tell by the tone in your voice that uh, the immediacy with how you reacted to my request to be on the show this evening was, uh, was pretty intense, and you seem to have some very strong feelings about this whole issue. That's an understatement. Uh, as a as a journalist and a citizen, I have uh, I, I guess it was in the mid '80s, uh, shortly after the uh, the news of Cornell University and Monsanto developing, you know, being in the developmental process for a a a biotechnology synthetic hormone injected into cows to boost cows' milk production. Uh, I, I, I had a visceral, a visceral early reaction to that in a negative fashion, and I, I haven't seen anything to convince me otherwise since. Well, I, I guess in, in one way, uh, and maybe we should get this issue uh, on the table and off the table quickly, uh, in discussion with some people that I've had over the past couple of weeks, um, and some of them are very doubtful about the, the effects of, uh, of, of GMOs and, and the kinds of things that are creating more of a transgenic world. And the, the benefits that they seem to um, allude to seem to be, in, in a little way, providing a bit of an argument against the kinds of things that I've been hearing. And I just want to balance all that off. And by asking you, are there any benefits to this genetically modified kind of a process that's going on and trying to make foods better, quote-unquote? How do you feel about that? Well, I would, Victor, to answer that question, I would uh, refer to the crop center, the the crop sector, and uh, show that in the uh, roughly 15 to 18 years that mainstream agriculture has had access to genetically modified corn and soybeans, we're seeing Mother Nature's ability to uh, uh, respond to new challenges uh, come forth. For example, we're seeing in the case of uh, genetically BT corn, that is corn where a, a chemical that paralyzes the digestive tract of tiny microscopic worms that that dine on the corn roots, corn rootworms, they have developed uh, resistance uh, to uh, that type of corn, and now there's major damage coming from corn rootworms in uh, biotech corn plants that have been designed to kill those rootworms. We also have the problem of genetic, uh, pardon me, genetically modified crops that are um, not killed by by the, the commercial uh, commercial herbicide Roundup patented by Monsanto mm-hmm. or glyphosate. Um, the, the there are weeds. There are weeds. I can't tell you how many, but tens upon tens of weeds that have developed uh, resistance to Roundup and glyphosate herbicides, including one one monster of a plant called the giant pigweed. You know what? Yeah. Let's let's just after the break, let's get to the yeah. giant pigweed, okay? Okay. Uh, okay, then we'll just we'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, you're listening to Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. My name is Victor Vigiani. Stay with us.
In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? Well, I certainly know why I'm up this late, and we're here to talk to you about a few different things that sometimes elude us. And if you want to check out more of it, I do invite you to go to uh, the Conspiracy Show website. That's uh, richardserrett.com, and you'll find out uh, past shows and things that are coming up, along with all the hard work that Richard does to put that site together. A very, very interesting and, and dynamic website. And also, while you're at it, you might want to check out Zeland Communications. That's my website. Just Google Zeland Communications, and you will land up with another experience that is quite unexpected. This evening, we're speaking with Peter Harden, editor of The Milkweed. Peter, once again, what was the kind of uh, bug you were talking to us about they before? It, they call it giant pigweed is the weed. Okay. And it's primarily manifesting itself down south and again it's developed resistance to the common herbicides and a mature plant of this stuff will produce about half a million seeds and when mature the stalk is so rugged that it actually dulls the equipment people are trying to uh, to chop it down with to the point where uh, a practice in the south has been revived the old hand hoeing simply to get rid of the stuff hand hoe it early because that's the only way to try to stop its spread in individual fields so beyond the issues like the pests and the uh, the weeds becoming resistant to the biotechnologies we also have questions about the whole soil biota you know the microscopic life in the soils being set back from its normal status by the overt use of some of these pesticides, such as Roundup. In your studies, I know that you've, um, you've come across a lot of in, uh, information regarding the dairy industry and the, the bovine growth hormone. Could you just run down some of the reasons why uh, farmers would have any interest at all, other than increased milk production, any interest at all in injecting their animals with this particular hormone? Maybe they're sadists. <laughs> Before we get into the... Can, can we quickly define what this product sure, is? Sure, right. Go ahead, yeah. Bovine recombinant, bovine growth hormone, is a biotechnology version of a natural cow hormone, and the biotech version has been... They're able to reproduce it using E. coli bacteria in a vat batch process. The uh, material is then purified... And the common label use is for the milk cow to be injected once every two weeks with this hormone. And the, the ostensible gain is, according to the companies, 8 to 12% more milk. Our dairy farmers seem to respond to economic signals of either good prices or bad prices by making more milk no matter what. So this technology appeals to some of them, although... It was approved, originally approved in uh, February of 1994, and over time, through consumer complaints uh, about the horm- you know, milk, they didn't want to uh, consume dairy products made from milk of hormone-treated cows, mm-hmm. uh, we probably see the product used in about 15% of U.S. dairy cows. So what does it do to the milk and to the cows themselves? Um well, it makes more milk. There are some subtle differences in the milk, such as the, uh, the, the composition and ratios of the short, medium, and long 
uh, chain fatty acids that in in the in the cream. Uh, there are also higher levels of the hormone itself, but most troubling is the is the issue of higher levels of a so-called secondary hormone, IGF-1, which stands for insulin-like growth factor 1. And that hormone is, is horm- that bodily hormone of bodily production of IGF-1 is spurred by growth hormone levels. And IGF-1 in cows is exactly the same structurally as IGF-1 in humans. IGF-1's function is to circulate to every cell in the body and coordinate cellular function. That's, that's That's a miracle if you think about it, but do we necessarily want more of that stuff in our milk? No. I guess, well, I've heard descriptions of milk having pus in it and things like that. There's some really dashed things going I wouldn't go going that far. Oh, there, yeah. there are, there are uh, legitimate arguments about the, the use of the hormone boosting udder health problems, and uh, the udder's response to health problems is to produce more white cells. I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but uh, some people have. Yeah. I, I also understand that it changes uh, some of the size of the internal organs, like the ovaries and things like that. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. In oh. 1990, I received animal health study files that had been generated by a Monsanto test at its test farm in, near St. Louis. And uh, what happened was, after milking 80 or so animals for 10 months, the test was over. They killed the animals, had had had, had broken the animals uh, during the test into four four treatment groups, uh, and the versus the control group, the three different levels of dosage for the the, the group, the three groups receiving the actual drug, uh, there was a huge increase in very critical organs such as thyroids, liver, <clears throat> heart, adrenals kidneys and ovaries and that you know expanded size of these types of organs and glands are regarded by toxicologists as critical early signs that something's wrong and then for example on pregnancy the control group had a 93 percent pregnancy rate and the uh, 1x 3x and 5x dose level groups uh, pregnancy rates were in the 50 percent uh, percentile. So here's the bottom line. The hormone accelerates the body's metabolism. There's 30 percent more blood that flows through the heart of these animals, and their organs and glands are working overtime. And you can imagine, take the example of a car engine or a tractor engine, there are certain upper limits uh, of performance or RPM to which these engines are are designed and as with a cow you push the engines past their design capacity and something's going to give well i guess that all alludes to the next point i suppose is the kind of corporate behavior that's involved in all of this with corporations knowing full well that the kinds of things that they're putting onto the market for farmers and 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 different individuals involved in the transgenic uh, i guess distribution of this, these things it's 
it, there's a profit line there that has to be maintained. And what is the balance that's achieved by this? It, the long the long term uh, dysfunction that's going on seems to be absolutely deleterious. Yet these corporations seem to have the uh, the permission of government and, and media and, and and even implicitly through some of the through some of the citizenry to just to go ahead and do whatever the heck they want. Uh, and it seems yeah. that's that's as, the status quo. As, as one of the original activists opposing. Uh, recombinant bo- gro- bovine growth hormone. If we had known how the deck was stacked against us early on, we probably wouldn't have bothered because the uh, cow growth hormone was simply the symbolic first hormone, uh, first food biotechnology, major food biotechnology out of the out of the genie's bottle, if you will. And you know, behind it now we see perhaps. 80 to 90 percent of our soybeans and corn in the corn seed in the U.S. is biotech. They've got biotech alfalfa, which is pretty scary because that's a perennial. And uh, uh, just massive, massive changes in our, our fundamental foods. Uh, but the cow growth hormone was the first, and the revolving door between, uh, in, in this case, Monsanto and the FDA and was, or I should say, Monsanto, and also Monsanto remunerated automatons. It's, it was absolutely shocking. But here's what's really scary: the head of FDA's branch that approved bovine growth hormone back in the early 90s, Michael Taylor. He is now our nation's food safety czar, implementing a set of draconian new food safety rules that are going to substantially put small and medium farmers and small and medium food processors out of business. Well, so this one yeah. has a long tail that goes all the way to the present. Sure. I hate to use the pun, but you've given us a lot of food for thought this evening in many <laughs> different ways. It's a tormenting kind of thing to know that we're going those kinds of directions without the proper controls. Very quickly, tell us a bit about your website, The Milkweed. Well, our address is themilkweed.com. And um, it, it gives a reflection of what the paper has. My paper is a 16-page tabloid published monthly, 5,000 subscribers, no advertising. The paper is strictly supported by, uh, by subscription revenue, and we feature uh, original reporting, economic analysis, investigative reporting of many factors that go into our modern U.S. dairy industry. Well, it's been a pleasure having you with us this evening. I'm totally enthusiastic about learning more about this because it's a a domain of information that I'm woefully inadequate about, and it's of such importance that the educational process that's involved in all of this is uh, because we're ingesting this stuff into our bodies and our children are, are involved in it too. It's something that you really can't take for granted. Probably one of the most damning articles we ever printed was in August of 06 where we showed that the incidence of milk, duct tissue cancers in postmenopausal women jumped by approximately 60% from 93, which was the year before RBGH was approved, and within five years up to uh, 98 or so. Mm-hmm. And those types of cancers, I understand, are very tough because they're fast and deep. I just think Playing with synthetic hormones in our food supply is a very, very dangerous and bad idea. 
Well, I think that you've pointed that out uh, very well this evening, and I think it's something that, as I said earlier, you've given us food for thought. And I want to thank you very, very much for joining us this evening, uh, Peter, because it's almost something that we have to revisit at another time because you really can't do it in 30 minutes on the radio. Please. Yeah, it would be something that we could definitely look at again. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Peter Harden, take care thank now. You. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. My goodness, um, we hope that you can spend some time thinking about some of the information that you've heard. I know some of the convictions that you've heard this evening, we'd hope it wouldn't fall on, on fallow fields. We hope that they have a way of uh, inspiring you to learn more and become more enlightened about our planet Earth. So I want to thank you very much on behalf of Richard Serrett for joining us on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigiani. Good night. <laughs>